Hello and welcome to India Speak, a podcast by the Center for Policy Research. I'm Rohan Menkert. You're listening to CPR Perspectives, a special series commemorating CPR's 50th anniversary. This month, we bring you a conversation with Akaja Singh, a fellow at CPR who has worked across a whole range of topics, broadly converging around the idea of administrative coherence. Singh has conducted research across a wide span of topics from sanitation and manual scavenging to informal settlements and land titling to the framework of the Indian administrative state. The through line across these different areas is a focus on understanding why government operates in the way it does and what it will take to alter and reform it. I spoke to Singh about her years as a government's consultant, how we cannot understand access to water without first tackling the state's approach to land and what advice she has for young scholars entering the policy space. All right. Thank you so much, um, Akaja, for being on CPR Perspectives. We're very happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Rohan. Um, we usually like to get started um, to get a sense of your sort of thinking before you entered the policy world proper, um, whether that's, you know, when you were younger or through university life. What what brought you into policy space in India? So, uh I came into, you know, I came into the, you know, into the world of adults uh, in in the year 2000. And uh, at that time, uh, the policy world, or at least what of the policy world I, you know, I encountered immediately. At that time, I joined a law firm. I joined, uh, a, a law, it was a law firm called J, J. Sagar Associates, which is now known as JSA Law. And they had, a, you know, they had a practice in infrastructure and public policy. They had a very fledgling practice at the time in infrastructure and public policy. And this was, you know, sort of its seeds were in India's uh, structural adjustment and liberalization process, where there was it's the world of PPPs and concession agreements and privatizations and electricity sector reforms. So it was all, you know, this this whole all of this was very linked to structural adjustment. And uh, at that time, the world was kind of divided between, uh, or the world I saw was divided between this lot, meaning the direction, the direction of privatization and the direction of uh, the direction of you know neoliberal reform on the one side and the anti-privatization activism on the other side most of the people you know most people i knew my friends were all you know ranged on this ad my friends at that time were all ranged on this anti-privatization side and both of these discourses were a little limited and a little kind of mutually contradictory but it looked as if there was going to be at that time it looked as if you had to pick a side and i didn't really want to pick a side because neither of these were fully fully complete or satisfactory to me and it was uh, as if there was going to be a face-off but actually that face-off never happened and i think that's one of the interesting things about the indian state in the last few decades is how everything happened and none of that happened and it all kind of got absorbed and subsumed uh, into what was happening in the Indian state. So that's where I started. So just a quick step back to to sort of one step before that, which is that you, you, you studied law. Were you thinking of, were you always thinking of law as a policy uh, adjacent or policy space? Or did you at some point think you would be practicing um, were you, you know, you, you seem to already have been thinking about 
as you said, policies in terms of even if it's in broader terms about the state or being on either side of that liberalization debate. But but yeah, did you did you come into it knowing that you were interested in these things already? I think I did. If I, I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to think back of what I was thinking when I was in class 12, when I was going to law school. But I did see at that time the opportunity to study law as a place to uh, engage with the world. And not, you know, that loss, you know, the promise of National Law School, which I went to at that time, was that it trained you not just for the practice of law, but for a kind of engagement with the world the world of ideas, the world, the world of kind of, you know, academia. A lot of my, you know, friends and colleagues went into academia and, you know, activism and NGOs. Like, it, you know, all of that was open um, in the way in which law school was set up. Right. And and the... the so, I so, so I did join and I did join a law firm. I joined a corporate law firm because mm -hmm. that was also what uh, was, you know, the mainstream. And, you know, I didn't know exactly, you know, what the options were at that time. But one of the options that was available to me was an Indian law firm. And it was a very nice Indian law firm. It was, you know, I think one of the best in terms of what they were doing and how they were structured and their own kind of, you know, it had a kind of ethical core. It had a way of relating to its colleagues and employees in a way that was a lot, you know, a lot less nasty than law, law firms were at the time. So it was a very nice place. And, you know, for all those reasons, I went to it because it was kind of the next automatic choice. And I'm glad I did because it opened lots of new and interesting worlds for me, even though I didn't stay in the mainstream of the legal profession. Yeah, that's that's good to hear because you know uh, the 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 first few years in in law firms in India are not something that most people want to remember or remember fondly. Um, and so, what what happens next? You 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 you're at the law firm, um, on presumably working on on some of these these issues, yeah. but, but yeah. you, you make so the I jump. Worked, I worked in. I mean, I did some corporate and commercial work, uh, but I also then. Uh, worked in the law firm's infrastructure and public policy practice. And I was, you know, a new, like really newly minted lawyer. So I was doing work that was, you know, quite low down in the food chain. But some of the work that we were involved with was around the unbundlings and the restructuring of the electricity sector, uh, infrastructure sector, concession contracts, the new Electricity Act. I mean, not new now, but that the Electricity Act was being written. There was all this kind of thinking going on about the structuring of public-private partnerships, the legal contractual aspects of public-private partnerships and how risk sharing was to be kind of divided and allocated in that contractual form. So this was some of the work that I did. I mean, some of the work that I was kind of around and, you know, did small parts of it when I was in the law firm. Um, and just just one last thing before we jump to to you know your move into policy um, from from the law firm space. I mean, you're already starting to cover some of this um, at the law firm, but you mentioned earlier about people being on either side of of that divide. Um, uh, is that is that something you encountered at the professional level as you were t taking up some of these duties, um, or is it more about sort of the, the milieu that you're in, your friends and you know the people you're encountering at, at college and so on is it did you feel that you had to pick a side even in in terms of the actual work or it was more just the broader atmosphere when the actual work i mean the work that we were involved with was very much a product of 
the structural, you know, an outcome of liberal, economic liberalization. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, we were sort of already, you know, you know, in in one side of that debate. But I'm talking about the law, and you know, in that one side of the debate, it was, I mean, you know, as as time emerged, and I saw, you know, I, you know, the way many of my colleagues navigated the space. Actually, it's much more nuanced than was. You know that that than what their their critics would have seen at that time, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, but you know so I was already you know in a in a place where we were work where we were excited about the possibility the possibilities of um, of what this would mean in law firm work, um, but I'm talking about the larger milieu where the you know in literature in writing in in academic writing in um, you know policy conversations there was this kind of two sides. Uh-huh. I definitely want to come back to to understanding how, as you say, you know, it, the face off never happened, and there was uh, we talked about the, the state absorbing or accommodating uh, these viewpoints. But but before we do that, mm-hmm. just getting a sense then of so so what happens following the law firm? You 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 make a decision to jump a little more firmly into into policy. So then I went to do a masters. Mm-hmm. As when as what what does when you're a little un, you know unattentive about what you what you're doing. So I went to do a masters. I went to Suez in London, and um, around the and I you know I did some development studies programs as part of though I was part of a master's degree in law. I did some development studies program uh, courses, and then uh, just when I was finishing up, um, I was looking around for what I wanted to do next. I had the option of going back to the law firm. I was looking around and then I encountered a very interesting bunch of people in London who were part of, who ran a consulting firm that worked in international development. And this place, and they, you know, at that point really had a requirement because somebody had left. They had a big and very exciting project in India and they were looking for somebody to fill a very big gap that had emerged in how they were going to do this project. So, you know, I had, you know, just been reading some of the work that this law, that this consulting firm was doing, some of the, you know, policy report writing, they'd written some, some sort of, you know, some, they'd written some sort of publicly available documents, which I'd been reading. And, and, you know, I I was finding their way of thinking about this stuff interesting. And uh, just then I got in touch with them and I met them and they said, you know, we have this project to study the, you know, political economy of public administration reform in South Asia. And we're interested in understanding tactics and strategies and the project is structured in this way. And do you think you can get into it? And I was like, yeah, this is the, you know, exactly the type of job I, you know, I thought I would do. And I didn't even have the, you know, the, I couldn't even imagine that a, a job that would be more perfect than this. So I jumped at it. And uh, then I stayed on with them because we had a series of, you know, we, I stayed on with them for almost a decade was the work actually like what did it mean to be um doing this consultancy were you working um more on the back end in terms of doing the research were you meeting with the clients uh, directly what, what did it entail so our client for for that particular project was an international um, i mean a bilateral development agency and um, i mean the nature of this kind of development consulting work is that a lot of it was a lot of it was then funded by either bilateral or multilateral international agencies. 
Very little of it was directly funded by governments in the kind of developing world context and in the South Asian context in particular. So that was, I mean, you know, just to put out that that's where we were located. Uh, but this project was a study. It was to understand, you know, it wasn't actually linked to a development, a specific development program. It was, you know, part of like understanding development and understanding the politics and the strategies of development. So it was meant to be a comparative study between Pakistan, India and Bangladesh. And we were supposed to do India and Bangladesh. And I was supposed to do India. And in that we picked two Indian states and we, you know, we said we'll look at various aspects of the governance reform process. You know, this like post-liberalization or even pre-liberalization, but what was what would be broadly categorized as administrative reform. So we would look at what these states did in the in the field of administrative reform and the historical context, the political uh, background, uh, why it happened. And, uh, you know, this, this kind of concept of tactics and strategies that leaders or that departments or whatever, like in whatever way the actors, whatever tactics and strategies, we would try and disentangle that from the reform, from the story of that reform. So I had to go to these states and I had to spend a lot of time, you know, many, many lovely weeks were spent in these states meeting bureaucrats and meeting civil servants and meeting uh, local academics and kind of, you know, getting this very kind of, it was a very, very, very interesting account. And I got to work with a senior colleague who was a political scientist, who was a South African political scientist. We worked closely together on the study, and I think that was also very formative for me, the process of working with that particular colleague, because it really helped me kind of work through my ideas and to kind of taught me how to articulate what I was learning also, but taught me how to kind of, you know, it, it helped, you know, the, the dialogue between, you know, our conversation kind of then shaped a lot of my thinking. So it was a very important project for me in that way of how it made me understand government. And this and is not that me and the colleague agreed with each other on this. We had a lot of disagreements, but I think it was a very productive engagement. It seems also appropriate because in a sense, uh, and, and of course, one, one of the remarkable things about your, your career is to share breadth of things you've worked on, but... Um, uh, in a sense, this this sort of places one of the big through lines of of the work that you would con continue to do, which is which is looking at at government at governance specifically, and as you say, tactics and and strategies. Um, again, uh, so following this project, and and as you spend this decade at the consultancy, are you gravitating towards particular? fields um or is it more what what's coming the way of the consultancy are, are, are you sort of yeah are you making an active choice in terms of the subjects or is this something that more you know you just stumbled upon what what was needed to be done um so the way uh, so the firm a lot of our specialization was in cities and in inclusive inclusive urban development. This was very much the kind of area of specialization and the, the expertise that we had and the type of projects we would try, you know, we would bid for, we would put in proposals for, and we would get. This was very much in that area. So mm -hmm. that choice of working on cities was, in a sense, you know, I could have been 
working in a firm that worked in rural development and I would be in a different space entirely. So that choice was a little bit, you know, to start with, it was accidental. But I think the continuing challenge and the excitement of understanding cities uh, then is something that kept me engaged also. And just to, you know, one little sidestep, just to say how these projects come about is that the is that you have to put you know you 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 evaluated your proposals are evaluated on the basis of the expertise of your team and its previous projects that your team members have done and the expertise of the company and the previous project credentials that they can put up so if you do if you develop a specialization in certain areas you're likely to do more and more of that work However, I was, uh, because I was kind of, you know, became a governance consultant, my area was perhaps a bit broader than what it would have been if I had been an urban planner or something. And uh, because of that, I got to work on, you know, a wider set of projects. I also worked on the business development side, the writing proposals. And, you know, a lot of the, and some of our work was actually, um, you know, these kind of studies of the type I described. But some of the others were, what would be called like project concept note studies. So these will be related to the structure and design of future interventions. Uh, and then some of it was relating to actually implementing large programs or then sometimes evaluating the results or the outcomes of large programs. Yeah, I mean, uh, so to, to, to demystify for, for the un, unfamiliar listener or reader, um, so then a governance consultant, you're, you're, you're really doing a, a whole bunch of different things potentially, right? You're, yes, you're, yeah, you're, you're intermediating, but you're also evaluating. I mean, it's, it's a, um, I think it's a term that, uh, that not many uh, who are not in the field might understand. So, so maybe to ask, like, if, if you could give us an example of a project that you worked on at the time or something that, that just gives us a flavor of what, what that looked like in the field. Mm -hmm. So it could mean many different things, uh, as you've like really like correctly pointed out. So, uh, you know, in a kind of public administration reform study, it could mean, you know, understanding the reform, the literature, the writing, the actual content of the reform, the institutional story of that reform. All of that could be part of my work. But uh, I mean, there was a, just an anecdote when uh, some years after this, I was working in a project in Madhya Pradesh. And I had been made responsible for coordinating the city level implementation. This was a large kind of urban poverty program. And I was made responsible for implementing the city level part of that program in the city of Gwalior in Madhya Pradesh. Mm -hmm. I had a team uh, of people and we were supposed to set up a, an office inside the municipal corporation in Gwalior. And uh, I had a team which consisted of, you know, several experts who were all older than me, who were all men and uh, who had worked in many, maybe not identical projects, but they had worked in many more places, obviously, than me. And I was supposed to coordinate them and, and kind of organize the whole project. And I was supposed to be like the face of this project also, but also the, you know, actually I had to hold all the pieces together. And I told my senior colleague, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do over here because, you know, this is an urban project. I'm not an urban planner. Uh, there's an accounting and finance aspect of it. That's not my expertise. They're engineers. And what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I don't have any specialization in anything related to this project. And this uh, senior colleague said, 
you are a governance consultant, you have to take a step back. And as you go along, you'll see that what you have to do is very valuable. So just uh, kind of apply yourself and uh, you'll figure it out. And often the brief was something like this, you know, apply yourself and figure it out. But, you know, it becomes much more, it becomes much more real in the context of a particular, of any particular project. And uh, since I've, uh, you know, to answer your question, you know, in more specific terms, the kind of the space of in law and institutions and the space of like, you know, the you know, so it's not it's not just kind of organizational or agency level or, you know, what would be a specifically a public administration aspect. So there might be like HR reform, for example. So, you know, to say governance consultant is different from saying HR reform specialist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a that's a distinction also. So sometimes, you know, some part of that work might have involved mapping how many people, how much staff there was of different levels and, you know, what their plans were for their future trajectories. You know, some of that work might have involved some of those things. But there is a different specialization, which is HR reform. And governance consulting is very is different from that. It's broader. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I, I think we'll double back into to dipping into some of the things that you worked on and, and, and your approaches and writing on policy, but maybe just again to get them to complete that uh, sense of, of the career path. Um, after about a decade at the, at the consultancy, you make your way to CPR. Can I ask how, how that came about? Uh, so I, I came, you know, I started to move out of the consulting world in about 2015, and it was in early 2016 that I came to CPR. I had, uh, you know, I knew the people at CPR. I had briefly worked, I'd done some, you know, part-time work with Patho and Kupadia at CPR before, and so I knew him well. And uh, we were, and then my uh, my colleague, Shudhagato, who, who I knew from a consulting project, had also moved to CPR, had also moved back to CPR because he'd been there before so I knew quite a lot about CPR they knew quite a lot about me and we were all quite interested in this space between you know between policy and and cities and you know there was a lot of very exciting work on cities going on at CPR at the time and my colleague Shubhagato had just uh, you know had had recently set up a, a large program on sanitation and, uh, you know, when, you know, when we started to talk, he said, you know, this is a large program on non sewer sanitation. And I said, but I'm not a sanitation expert. And he said, uh, you know, I think you, you know, we need your skills here as well. And so, you know, it was that conversation that then, you know, led it led to my coming to CPR. Did you find that the actual um, activity changed at majorly between those two positions or was it just a matter of degree in the sense you were still mapping things out you were still in the field trying to understand how things work as well as the history of of those processes or those institutional things like did, did it radically change what you were doing on a day-to-day -day, making that shift yeah some things change you know quite a lot changes so even though the content of like my ideas or the things that I was working on might you know there might be you know strong continuities between those two things i think the frame changes changed a lot between consulting and being in cpr the kind of scope and also the freedom to define your own agenda 
you know, it, it's much, much broader in CPR than it would be within the frame of a consulting project. Um, also, you know, in a consulting project, in, in consulting, I had kind of reached the uh, the limit before I had to, you know, become a business person. Mm-hmm. And uh, in CPR, I could extend that for a bit further, I suppose. So that was also, that was also, I mean, so I could remain kind of interested in the world of ideas, in the world of like, you know, in the, in the content of what we were working at and thinking at and, you know, the, whichever like mountain we were chipping away at, it was, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a very different way of looking at that mountain you're chipping away at. Uh, you know, when I moved over to CPR, there was much more uh, an idea of publicness in the mm-hmm. nature of what we were doing. So, you know, even though I mean, I think um, in the development, I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like there is this thing that you know they say you know consultants do this and consultants do that and on the other hand the consultants say academics do this and academics do that but actually they have much more in common between the two people and there is a kind of continuity of public spiritedness that I would say uh, you know I encountered on you know right you know on both sides and across, you know, most of the places that I have worked in, there is a publicness and a public spiritedness to, you know, what motivates and drives people into what they write. If they're writing, you know, writing a report for a kind of, you know, within the frame of implementing a government program, uh, you know, you're much more constrained. There are only certain, you know, there's there's very little space in which you have to do one particular practical task. And in a think tank, the space is much wider. You can define it very differently. You can ask more fundamental questions. You can engage with more fundamental questions. But uh, there is a publicness to both. And I think, uh, you know, having a look at, at both sides, it has been, you know, to me, something that's that I've valued. Yeah, it definitely seems like uh, yeah, get, getting getting both sides of that coin adds to the overall um, picture that you're able to develop. Also, of, of the things that you're working on, um, uh, you know, uh, at CPR, I know you've worked as we mentioned earlier that breadth. You've worked across um, a whole range of subjects and and with different teams. You worked with the the urban group, the state capacity group, with the land rights initiative, with the with water and federalism, and and and. I'd like to delve into some of these topics, um, but maybe if I had to ask, you know, without simplifying, um, would you say there's a, a broader theme or a thrust to to what you you look at or the approach you take to policy? We've we've spoken about about administrative coherence, about about governance, and so on. Is there is there an an overarching theme to to your general you know areas of interest? Let's say. So I've been thinking about this and, you know, thinking about how, uh, think, you know, thinking around for some years now, this idea of administrative coherence. And I think, uh, you know, you asked me earlier about the work of a governance consultant. And I don't think a governance consultant is exactly trans, you know, for every person who thinks of it like that. I don't think it would translate to administrative coherence. But but you know that's that's the route I might have started there, and you know this is where you know this is where my thinking is now. And I'll say what I what I think what I think is the 
what I think is administrative coherence, and this is, I think, the running thread through, you know, various parts of my work and various things that I have engaged with. And this is, you know, what it's made up of or what it what it exists in is in the everyday interactions between law and administrative practice inside the state. And uh, it includes, of course, you know, very kind of, you know, in its in its building blocks, it includes things like rules and standards and norms and the space and the frame of reasoning. So how administrative power is structured and how it is reasoned and how it is exercised. And, you know, the ways in which it is controlled, its checks and balances and methods of accountability um, and how it engages with the claims of society. And, uh, of course, the capacity questions, you know, often it's thought, you know, capacity becomes like the thing that's like right in front. And I'm talking about the things that came a bit later, but uh, uh, also having enough people, having funds to actually do jobs. So, you know, this this kind of content of looking at state practice has been, I would say, a running theme through, you know, many of the things that I have done. What I'm looking to do um, is to, to to get a sense of of you know you you mentioned administrative coherence and and this idea of of studying you know the the state and and the nature of of both both its its actual actions but also its its ideas um, and and I'm curious how, how that looks like in in practice uh, you know for 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 the for the listener and reader to to just get a sense of what it means to be looking at administrative coherence on the ground. Um, maybe one of the things that I mean, you've you've applied this to a number of different topics, and I'm happy to to delve into whichever one you think is most appropriate in terms of thinking of administrative coherence. But one of them is municipalities and the, the municipal state. So maybe if we could hear a little bit of, of of your work on on this front and how that concept of administrative coherence fits into it. So um, first, first I should say what I mean by the municipal state. And uh, this is the, I mean, you know, the center of the municipal state, of course, you know, it's uh, is other local bodies, the, the municipal corporations and municipalities, so the elected local body, the third tier of government. But the municipal state is actually not just that because it's not, it's not, you know, it's quite fragmented and there are quite a lot of different agencies that are responsible or that engage with the parts of activity that we would consider, that to a lay person would be considered urban, including water and sanitation and land and planning and buildings and, uh, you know, transport. And so it's a, it's a cluster of different agencies of which the municipality may be only one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's how much or how this how this municipal role is structured varies quite a lot. So, you know, there is a formal 74th Amendment of the Indian Constitution, which lays down some kind of constitutional mandate saying all cities have to have elected local bodies uh, and they should be given progressively more and more of a role. But uh, the, you know, the actual content of how the, how big and what the profile of the municipal institution is, this is quite regional. And it has particular, it has regional trajectories and it has historical contexts. You know, a long time ago, I, you know, I wrote a paper about the colonial history of local bodies because, uh, you know, the, 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 the the earliest local bodies in India were set up from the 1860s onwards. It was, you know, the earliest forms of kind of modern elected government were the local bodies. 
very different from where how they are now. But this was, uh, I mean, the, you know, many of the, you know, some of the very prominent local bodies such as Calcutta City Corporation and uh, Chennai City Corporation and Bombay and even some of the smaller places in Western and Southern India have their orig origin in that time of, of, of local bodies. And... Uh, then, of course, the you know there are the you know there's the more recent kind of reform trajectories, the reform agendas, uh, the reform agendas that have been quite a lot has been driven by the center in India's federal context. There's been quite a lot of driving from the center of municipalization or the agendas of municipal reform, and that's another whole separate kind of universe to go into. What you know this basket of things that get called municipal reform, and their interactions with the regional contexts and the politics that it encounters. And this includes a bunch of things like digitization and property tax reform and computerization, some of the very obvious things and some of the things that might be a little surprising that they've been, but you know, there's a, we have a two decade history of this cluster of things that are called, you know, that, that go with the municipal state. Uh, you know, there are different kind of vantage points from which the, uh, you know, if you look at it from the outside, there is the, there is the PIL form or the, you know, the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of law around uh, the municipal state not doing what it's supposed to do and being challenged in the court of law, which is, you know, a particular kind of adversarial framing of, which defines in, you know, which defines in legal terms sometimes what the municipality is supposed to do. It's also in administrative terms, sometimes measured and accounted for by projects and by fund utilization, because we are very much, I mean, this is located very much in the context of urban development being an unfinished agenda. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, more and more, you know, fiscal transfers from the center, funds become available. There's, you know, there's a larger context of uh, the development of Indian cities being you know, a long durée continuing agenda. And the municipal state is not a static form in that it's very much like it's still being built. And it's that process of being built. Uh, and so it's incomplete. And so it's process, you know, it's, it's incomplete in many ways. But there's the possibility in, you know, in this, in the perspective of administrative coherence that I'm talking about, there is the possibility of making a qualitative understanding of, uh, what these institutions are uh, and you know in what ways they are complete or incomplete or sorry <laughs> or com you know and what they you know complete or incomplete when viewed from you know the dimension of what they do on human rights rule of law and their environmental outcomes so you know i think understanding what uh, understanding the administrative uh, you know understanding the administrative state from the, you know, it's, you know, it's internal kind of structures and logic and rationalities is uh, perhaps the best way to understand, you know, you know, what I mean by the point of administrative coherence. Yeah, I don't know if this is the is the natural natural segue in terms of you know down that line, but um, if I if I can direct her then to to some work you did um, last year, for example, on on water um, and the, and the right to water, um, yeah. uh, one of the one of your important points there is that you can't we can't understand um, access to water 
for for ordinary Indian citizens, particularly those living in urban spaces, particularly those living in informal urban spaces, without first thinking about land. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, if we could talk about that a little bit, and, and again, to me, it's a, it's a classic thing of just understanding, as you say, where the state is incomplete, but also how it thinks and 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 what we need to to understand before we can go about reforming or or altering its behavior. Yeah. So this was a so this particular paper that you are referring to, where I wrote about you know in the context of Indian municipalities, the human right to water in the context of Indian municipalities. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I was, you know, trying to kind of explain, explain practice or understand, you know, understand, you know, the content of practice around universal access or around the challenge or and the lack of universal access to drinking water in urban settlements, in, you know, informal urban settlements. And uh, this, I, you know, I looked at the, the rules and the rationalities with which the municipal state operated and its inherent contradictions and limitations. So, you know, the the broader problem is that, you know, while there is enough to go around, perhaps, you know, in quant, you know. Um, yeah, so the, there's a, the, you know, the broader problem is that, you know, the, the goal of universal access or, you know, reaching drinking water to everybody, which is unarguably, you know, has to be a policy goal everywhere. It's undermined by kind of inherent and under unexamined contradictions in how the, you know, you know, how municipalities are supposed to kind of plan and deliver and implement drinking water services. Uh, there are also, um, so people have to, so as a result of which people have to navigate around uh, their precarities and remain, you know, people in vulnerable spaces, people in uh, in informal settlements who are also, you know, who are also very largely poorer than people in, sorry, I'm doing really confusing things because I've got too many, uh, sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> not a problem. You know, I feel like I'm not answering your question. And so let me come back to your question. Can you please say your question again? Sure, sure. sure. I'll, 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 I'll do the question again, no problem. Um, so so just to, to take that to um, a couple of paper, uh, a paper that you worked on that, that came out last year, um, to understand how, how this plays out um, on the ground, you, you, you wrote about... Um, the, the right to water and particularly how what that tells us about um, the Indian state's approach uh, in the context particularly of informal urban settlers in uh, residents in in Indian cities um if you could just tell us a little bit about what's in that what's in that paper and to me what was really interesting is that we we can't understand um, the right to water without thinking about land as well um and so just if you could let us know what what was in that paper and what what you sort of found. Yeah, yeah. So in that paper, I looked at uh, the paper was part of an international human rights project where people, you know, scholars from many countries were looking at the, you know, the impact or the outcomes or the, you know, local relevance of the global recognition of the, of the human right to water. And, uh, you know, at the at the sort of larger project level, I looked at the case law also and I found, you know, there was you know, surprisingly, considering uh, considering the the context, there was this really just a, a, 
simple, real, small scattering of cases that relate to the human right to water in urban contexts. This is not because there is not a problem, but because the problem is quite, you know, it's quite a, you know, unwieldy problem and the court is unlikely to be able to do something very useful. So it's probably strategic and tactical that people are not really going to the courts, for, for, you know, courts over this issue. Um, now, the, the issue itself relates to, you know, the nature of the settlements that people live in, which are, which may be, you know, um, unplanned and informal and they might have problems in terms of you know having incomplete tenural claims to the land that we that they live in but also uh, the settlements don't completely fit or conform to planning regulation and they don't have all the approvals the reason why people are in these settlements is uh, often because it is the type of housing that they can afford to live in so there is a, you know, and so there are, of course, large numbers of people in these places and they do have some kinds of access to water. That access has also improved over time. It's improved vastly in the past few decades. But uh, there is a, when, when, you look, when, when you look more closely at how that access is structured, it is still not, you know, of the same grade. There's a second class or a special, you know, a, you know, a second grade access that people have in informal settlements to water. And though that second grade settlement, of course, um, can be, you know, in real practical terms, impose very harsh difficulties on the people who live over there. So I look to examine, you know, one, where the what the obstacles are, and two, how is it negotiated on an everyday basis? So I looked at this one particular. I looked at this one particular case, which relates to Bombay, which I call with the Pani Haksamiti case, where actually the you know people in those settlements were getting regular piped municipal water, and then there was a policy change, a change of regulation of the government, which cut off those water connections, which resulted in those water connections being cut off or made illegal. So they had fully legal access, which became illegal. And uh, I first looked at the court, you know, at the uh, at the decree, and I saw what the court gave them. And um, you know, I had read about this case being celebrated as a recognition of the human right to water by the Indian courts. But when I read what the court gave them, it seemed very measly beyond the like big declaration of the human right to water. The actual kind of outcome for people was still dependent on the government on a policy that the government was yet to formulate. The court also said that these people actually don't have a right to be here. And mm -hmm. you, municipal corporation, should be working to remove them from these illegal dwellings um, and that they didn't have a claim, an equal claim, to the city's mm -hmm. water services as, you know, good rate-paying mm -hmm. citizens who lived in formal and planned colonies. So it seemed quite dissatisfactory even as a, even as a you know, celebrated kind of human rights victory. Uh, but... Uh, you know, more than that, you know, by how did that policy of cutting off happen? Uh, was it was linked to the slum rehabilitation strategy of Mumbai, which was a very land-driven kind of housing program, which I've written about in the paper. And so, you know, to justify the SRA policy, they needed to <laughs> make this cutoff policy. So this was the context of this. Um, you know, when I tried to find out what, what was the outcome of this, you know, there was a long, hard-fought kind of on-the-ground outcome, which the residents in Mumbai slums 
you know, continue to fight that kind of pitched battle. Residents, activists, counselors, you know, everybody's engaged in what continues to be and kind of, you know, a, you know, local, you know, local pitched battles around, you know, securing, improving, stabilizing access to water. So this was one story. And then I looked at, uh, and then I, you know, looked from, you know, took a step away from this and looked at the municipal practice around um, drinking water access in urban slums in Madhya Pradesh. I looked at Madhya Pradesh because it was a place I was familiar with. And I could look at the rules and regulations and I could look at the practice and I could talk to municipal engineers and I could talk to, you know, uh, NGOs and people in the in the urban slums as well and find out what, you know, and I had been, you know, in the years when I'd worked in Madhya Pradesh, uh, this was something, you know, we had been actually dealing with this context. So I wanted to reflect on that also and reflect on how this practice recognizes and how people, you know, navigate this, this, this space. And <laughs> then too, I mean, I found that while it was a bit more porous, and there's a little bit more fluidity to what municipalities can do on the ground when people make proper kind of concerted claims for getting for getting or improving their drinking water access. There are, you know, there is a like a stack of paperwork because the municipalities don't have, I mean, because the uh, the informal settlements don't have full planning status and because people's title claims are incomplete. Now, to provide full fledged drinking water access, the municipality seems to need these two things. Now, if they don't need these, I mean, though, I mean, in theory, strictly on paper, they don't necessarily need these two things. But if they sanction a project to go and serve these settlements, it serves as, you know, in their in their rationality, it's a kind of ratification of the planning violations and the land title issues. So then instead of that complete document, they then look for, and of course, their rules require them to have that the person should be an owner of the property. So now they need to find something equivalent. That equivalent is a whole cluster of documents that the person needs to assemble. A plus, in uh, you know, in, along with that, they need to organize political mobilization, collective pressure on the institution, and then they might get ultimately a better quality of a community tap or a better quality of community level or neighborhood level access. The household, you know. You know, straightforward house connection that you know that is that you and I might consider is just basic to you know that the municipality should be giving. That doesn't come so easily in spite of all of this stuff, and in spite of the fact that there is a policy scheme which actually gives people you know it sets the rates, it's a lower mm -hmm. rate for connection fees. All of this stuff is there, but in spite of that, it's not you know it's still not completely accessible. And, yeah. Uh, so in these in these between these two options ultimately one or the other neither of these are really leading you you know all the way to success i mean all the way to you know full you know full first class status and uh, this i think this you know what is it what is the obstacle to this it is uh, it was my understanding that that was linked to how you know the state and administration you know, their relation to land and to the issues of legality around land. This is what I was talking about. Yeah, it's it's really a, 
I mean, it, the, the, the paper is fascinating because it throws up all those questions, the questions of how the state deals with land, but also a certain moral approach to to things that, you know, might looked at from a different point of view might 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 be different in terms of the moral hazard of, of, of sort of in, in their minds rewarding um, those who are on in informal or, you know, undocumented spaces and, and so on. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Maybe... Well, um, one one yeah. other thing, I mean, in context of that earlier conversation about privatization. So, uh, yeah. you know, in the in the early 2000s, when there was all this debate around water privatization, it uh, seemed, you know, the, the story was that water services were supposed to recover their own costs and therefore tariffs would have to be increased. And that experience did happen in structural adjustment in other countries where water companies were given large concessions to deliver water services and uh, there were all these issues about you know removing cross subsidies people would have to pay the cost of service and cost recovery and people who couldn't pay their bills would, would be disconnected and in fact this is you know this continues to be you know one of the rallying points in some you know it is the ex you know in, in global experience in other places but this didn't quite happen in our context we sidestepped this because uh, of the fact that none of our water services actually recover cost. And uh, you know, tariffs are generally quite low. So, uh, you know, it's that that whole that whole life sort of, uh, you know, even where a large number of private service providers might actually be involved in various parts of water treatment plants, you know, laying pipes, maintaining pipes, managing pipes, etc. That type of private sector vision of drinking water didn't actually happen for us and so the issue around providing water drinking water to poor people in informal settlements was not around what the most obvious thing which you would think was their inability to pay mm -hmm. uh, it was you know it was in no way linked to that it was in fact it would be much more rational from an economic perspective to have people get you know have people get individual house connections and pay, uh, you know, some sort of tariff. It would be, you know, much, you know, if, if, if economic rationality would be on that side. <laughs> but in fact, it was the opposite. In fact, it is the opposite because of the issue around land. It's really, I mean, it, it, it forces us to, to to grapple with the fact that that how things are also separated um, within the within the Indian administrative state, um, has has many many downstream consequences um uh this is some something i mean in a way again one of those things that shows up in in a lot of your work um another opportunity in a, in a very different setting for you to to examine this was when you looked at the question of hunger um during covid um if i may ask about that uh, that paper then because it's a very different environment more sort of an emergency or an urgent um a crisis situation and and you looked at at how um, how different states were able to actually get food out to people um, in in a time of lockdown, um, I'm curious again. Then, how wh what did you what did you set out to to discover, and what did you find uh, in that paper? So this paper I wrote in the you know it, towards the end of the towards the end of the 2020 lockdown was when I started to you know started to look at the material that led to the writing of this paper, 
and uh, at that time if you if you remember there was this you know the, the lockdowns there was of course the medical emergency of covid but also yes. because of the lockdowns there was the economic emergency that lots of people were in places where they were not being able to and you know lots of people were in forms of employment uh, you know forms of labor where they you know were getting no money and they couldn't afford to buy food so it was not that food was you know food was not there in the shop so it could not be bought but people just didn't have the money to buy food because of the you know how poor they were and so a few weeks of no work meant that they were that they would have been a huge hunger crisis uh, of course the indian state had to step in at that time lots of civil society also stepped in but the indian state also had to step in at that time and boost you know and address the immediate kind of humanitarian crisis that had that had suddenly i mean this you know this immediate humanitarian crisis that was there and uh, this you know of uh, the you know there was some there was some you know national support for how this humanitarian crisis was to be dealt with there you know additional food grain being made available uh, but a lot of the actual response was at state level and i looked at uh, the variations in how that response was structured these responses had to happen in a time where there was not much time to think about it not much time to set up anything new so they, a lot most of it went through the structure of the pds the public distribution system of food grain but the pds you know by its very nature was not designed to deal with emergencies and it was not designed to reach out to people who have suddenly become poor who may not have been on pds registers or may not have been in places where they were on pds registers so it was just not designed from in an emergency way uh and so lots of innovation and lots of experimentation and a lot of adaptation had to happen uh to and you know the like the mandate was very different from what the state deals with on an everyday basis or even what it deals with where there is an occasional and remote humanitarian crisis because this was a very large scale sort of crisis and what it really tested was the ability you know there were these there were urgent situations they had to deliver relief rapidly to respond to those urgent situations and they had to uh, you know over time it also became important that you could do it with dignity and provide relief which which was kind of decent and respectable to the people to whom you were reaching out this became relevant maybe not in the first 3 days of the crisis but as it wore on and uh, how to how the state could act in ways that were localized and contextual and discretionary because now you know state officials and that also state officials that were quite like low down in the hierarchy had to make discretionary judgment that this person or this place there's a group of people here they are in a crisis we have to go and reach them and uh, the system was specifically not designed you know public distribution systems or the state handling and distributing any kind of lages is specifically not designed for this kind of discretionary allocation because you know in normal times the fear or even in the you know the the kind of hard wiring of the state is to check pilferage and to check kind of distortionary discretionary judgments that people would make to their favorite people or you know whatever like miss you know uh, misallocation of state of state wealth so this was like state resource which had to be distributed in a way that somehow followed you know that somehow flowed along the structure without disrupting it too much because there was you know it, 
it couldn't be disrupted too much but this crisis meant that you know it had, you know a crisis of this nature hadn't been seen before so in this paper i uh, i spent some time thinking about the history of emergency relief and the history of food distribution and i looked at uh, you know right from like colonial accounts of food distribution and food distribution in the time of crisis and this kind of enduring concern with pilferage and with constructing kind of tests of neediness and that you know format of tests of neediness is something that you know that in some ways had to be substituted if it couldn't fully be met in the you know in the time of the pandemic different states responded to this problem in very different ways some were of course in a you know their positions were also very different because how many people were vulnerable what the profile of those vulnerable people were how they had to be dealt with these challenges were very different across states uh, but there was a interesting contrast between what happened in delhi and what happened in kerala because those are two places where there was uh, where there was a lot made out a lot was written a lot was talked about a lot of money was also spent a lot of effort was put into the response but while delhi's response was very large scale it had to be necessarily very kind of cookie cutter and non discretionary the food kitchens were large scale but very very non discretionary and very very basic in order to also satisfy you know what was being delivered also had to be very basic to satisfy that only a very needy person will make the effort to come to these food centers and eat this food you know every day um, and anything that was little more responsive or agile or emergency relief had to be delivered through civil society partnerships it uh, even though the government obviously had the money to have done this emergency relief they couldn't mobilize government money could not be mobilized to do emergency relief so it had to bank on civil society partnerships and civil society giving money and you know ngos uh, corporates just mm -hmm. people contributing charity had to be what was given as charity relief uh, there was a contrast i mean i made a contrast with what was what happened in kerala i mean often i mean there's a lot that's been written about the surface area of the state about the kerala state about its local government you know we also wrote about it in a old in my old work on public administration reform but a lot has been written about local government in kerala now in this place you know it's you know something you know it is the history of the kerala state and how it's organized but also how state and society are organized in kerala which meant that they were able to in spite of the fact that they spent much less money they were able to do more localized and discretionary and contextual relief uh and uh, you know deal with different kinds of situations even though the overall numbers of what they dealt with were much smaller they managed to do much better quality relief and uh, you know this was just you know how this problem of you know in that contrast there is the you know different ways in which the problem of administrative discretion and the problem of like how do you make people you know how do you, you know people exercise administrative power what are the different ways in which that power can be framed and structured this was something that i could reflect on in the course of writing that paper uh, i i'd happily dive into to a whole number of of the papers you worked on but uh, because we don't we don't have all, all the time um, maybe to to step back in just a, a bigger picture question um of whether this this approach to to understanding administrative coherence is it something that you think people in government and those adjacent to government 
looking at reform do they have a good enough grasp of it do you think this is this approach of you know looking at at rationalities and histories is one that um is done sufficiently in government as we set out to to continuously reform the indian state Hmm. So there too, you know, I think the elite state or the states or the parts of the state that deal with elite interests are obviously very different from the parts of the state that, you know, that 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 deal that don't that are in you know that are that are non-elite spaces, and uh, uh, so I think there's a you know I'll talk about two 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 different kinds of two different kinds of spaces. Where where the where this tension where this tension is there, one is the issue around unsafe sanitation labor and manual scavenging, and I can also talk about the regulatory agencies of post liberalization, you know, the regulatory agencies uh, which I you know, worked on in the last couple of years. Uh, so manual scavenging. Uh, you know to say a few things about what manual scavenging is it is uh dealing directly with uh, it's having human you know people handle directly manually human feces which is as yet you know untreated or semi treated human feces uh it has it's you know it's not just the technical kind of handling of this feces but it has a particular kind of caste it was a caste based occupation so it has a particular social and you know caste related history in india but uh, in and it was you know at some point almost everywhere in the world they would have had manual handling of feces but as sanitation technologies and the ways in which toilets were built and managed changed over time uh, you know most places were able to you know many places were able to move away from this kind of handling in india somehow for a combination of reasons uh even as sanitation technologies evolved we've got you know manual scavenging has also evolved and we've still got you know people dealing with uh human feces in ways that are like you know horrible and stark and uh you know hugely compromising of human dignity but it's also become more and more unsafe uh because of the nature of technology and you know for the past few decades we have you know this problem this increasingly visible problem of people dying or being permanently impaired uh, in terms of like health being permanently disabled because of the manual scavenging work that they have done uh, this is the this is the context of what manual scavenging is this has been uh, the term itself is something that uh, the term itself you know and its kind of recognition as an oppressive practice now has a long history in you know probably around the time of the freedom movement in you know pre independence india and in the early years of post independence india there was already a lot of concern and thinking about the place of the manual scavenger the oppression of manual scavengers and how uh, you know the conditions of their work could be made better um and you know it started with the conditions of their work getting being made better and then um, you know around in the 90s uh, the shift to prohibiting manual scavenging and you know you know the possibilities of technology opened up the story that it was possible to prohibit manual scavenging and still manage because mm-hmm. the, you know technology could do what people were doing earlier uh, so it has been framed because of this history as a problem of human dignity and of caste and oppression now this is very important and in fact other places in the world could you know valuably take from this actually in the understanding of sanitation labor 
But it's also, you know, a way in India we do not so well is that it's, you know, very under-recognized also as a, as a problem of state practice. So, you know, it's, you know, institutionally it's located in ministries of social justice, the legal framework is also handled by from a social justice perspective but there's very, there's not enough in how it's managed as a problem of state practice and by this i mean and i've referred to this when i was talking about the change of infrastructure and all is that manual scavenging has you know becomes necessary because of the quality of the infrastructure uh, our underground sewage lines our kind of the infrastructure and the you know what we have to deal with toilet waste with the you know with the waste from human settlements this is you know often so poorly made and costs were cut and corners were cut or it's under specified for the population or it doesn't you know there are various kind of technical and engineering problems with this infrastructure and that um, you know that shortage is accounted for by you know inexpensive sanitation labor which is of course much less expensive than using uh than you know fixing fixing the engineering problems so it's that you know it's uh you know it's that it's that prop that is you know that's a problem of state practice and it's a problem of the nature of employment because over time the the people who work as sanitation labor uh, labor their uh, employment terms have also got more and more informalized so it's even more difficult now to do things by you know to do things in kind of standardized follow standard operating procedures follow safety standards follow like all the operating sops that would um, you know that would make for the work to be safer and you know less less mm -hmm. under less humiliating all of those things are even more difficult to do because of the informalization of sanitation labor which is there's a historical nature to sanitation labor always being slightly informal and then the right sizing of the state means that you know that work has kind of moved into darkness and you don't even know like how those people are employed you know through contract and subcontract and you know it's become so fragmented and so disaggregated you know directly as a result of uh, state policy uh, the the law uh, the, the legal framework around the prevention and control of of manual scavenging also has many kinds of like legal requirements um, you know of what the state is supposed to do how it's supposed to document blocked sewers how it's supposed to you know there's a lot of paperwork that they're supposed to do as part of standard operating procedure to make sanitation labor you know less dangerous less unsafe and to ensure that it's not you know that that work between sanitation labor and manual scavenging it doesn't become manual scavenging work and all of this is you know there's really not enough attention to this side of the story of the state taking responsibility you know fully taking responsibility for this work and then seeing that it's done in a systemized systematized and organized way so this is one uh, you know this is one sort of example where you know perhaps not there's not enough thinking about you know the internal part of state practice and you mentioned uh, just just briefly there you mentioned also you know your study at the at the on the regulatory institutions that have been set up post 91 as as also maybe playing into this 
Yeah. So I mean, this was uh, I, I I when when I looked at the you know when I when I was we had a program on regulatory governance at CPR that I was a part of, and in that program I was talk you know we we had a seminar series that I'd organized where we talked to the chairpersons of state regular of you know of many other regulatory authorities about their mandate about their function and try to you know understand the structure of what is called regulation in the you know in this you know in this definite you know in this kind of loosely defined area of Indian regulatory agencies and what they do and how they do it and I mean this was just uh you know there's a lot that's being said and has been said continuously about uh, the performance of regulatory agencies, their outcomes. There are, you know, lots of problems that, lots of things that could perhaps be handled better. But what, in in looking at the, you know, at the structure of administrative power in regulatory agencies and how it was different from the, you know, the kind, the structure of administrative power across various parts of the Indian state that I had seen, um, you know, I felt like here was a place where um, a framework of reasoning and a framework for taking a decision, making a regulation, being responsible for the implementation of that regulation, and seeing that if there's a problem, how do you fix that regulation? How do you hear all the affected parties of that regulation? So here was a, a framework that provided for, you know, a better quality of rationality. And this is necessarily an economic rationality. This is necessarily structured as economic rationality, but a much higher quality of rationality was possible within the structure of these regulatory agencies. The regulatory agencies, by their terms of employment, also uh, sidestep some of the very kind of routine, uh, you know, low down problems of the Indian state, which is that people get transferred, people have multiple charges, they don't have enough time to think about something. And they have, they're not around for the outcome of what they've thought about and done, because by then they've got transferred. And they also don't get time to develop enough expertise in any particular area. It's also quite a problem for, you know, this is I'm talking about routine kind of departmental decision making, where most of the power of the Indian state is actually exercised. And most of the, you know, thinking of the Indian state actually is happening in departments and ministries, right? But within, you know, inside the department and the ministries, they have very little capacity to think through or implement, um, you know, medium-term policy transitions, anything that is multi-year or anything that has uh, that needs a variety of responses. You know, you came in late, so I need to give you, you know, some time to fix this situation, you've been around earlier. So, you know, your the standard that you have to conform with is higher, for example. Mm -hmm. or, or you, you know, if you were talking about environmental regulation, to say that, you know, small informal units might need to comply with XYZ standard, but if you are in a larger unit, you need to do this. And if you are in a remote area, the standard could be a little lower. But if you're, you know, the variety of standards that could be possible for the different contexts in which in which people are. And this is a capacity that exists within regulatory agencies and not outside. And it's very difficult to create its equivalence outside of regulatory agencies. And uh, this is not to say that, you know, all of the Indian state should be recast as regulatory agencies, but to say that something of this, this, this quality of regulatory agencies could actually be uh, 
you know, could actually be valuable in other parts of the state. So, you know, could we, you know, sort of consciously think about what is it in other parts of the Indian state that's lacking and how could some of these qualities be, uh, you know, be kind of uh, replicated or drawn on in other parts of the Indian state? Yeah, I, I like that pair of almost uh, these two these two um, papers because in, in a sense, one one is where things are clearly not working or not working as they ought to. And on the other side, we, we do have a, an interesting example of of finding solutions within within the structure of the Indian state, even if it is to carve out spaces that that deviate from from the norm. Um, uh, as we head into our final few questions, uh, one of the things we like to ask um, everyone on the series is is about misconceptions or what what people get wrong. Um, so, are, are there things about are there are there misconceptions about you know the Indian state or, or the things that you work on particularly that you find yourself having to correct all the time, whether it's coming from from media folks or even fellow scholars and so on? The first would be capacity building, and uh, I think this prop this the you know a lot of the kind of ills of the Indian state or it's you know the inadequacies of the Indian state get kind of you know the response to that the understanding of it is that there isn't enough political will and there isn't enough capacity and the problem with this uh, the problem with this characterization of course there is uh, I mean of course both of these problems are there but the problem with this characterization is that uh, the first one has a kind of determinism that you can't do much about. And the second one is that you would, uh, you should, you know, capacity building then translates into either hiring or training and more often training than hiring because it has, it's less expensive to train people than to hire people. But uh, not enough thought is given to kind of structural accountability like, you know, internal and structural accountability. And uh, the sort of thing that I'm talking about, in, you know, in as capacity is being able to, you know, have people in places and positions where they can remain focused on a particular region or geography or sector or subject and have a kind of, you know, a you know, build expertise and competence in that area and then also be there for long enough to be responsible for that. So, and also, you know, this, you know, what in the context of the regulation paper, I call the a concentration of power, where you can, you know, take the decision, you can, you know, correct your decision, you can make variations of your decision. So not enough thought goes into the structure of the of power uh, the structure of administrative power because of this you know because of this kind of easy and convenient focus on capacity building yeah you know, I mean, it is not to say that i mean you know civil servants and you know people in government employment won't benefit from you know you know on the job training and mid career training and you know uh, opportunities to train and network and improve your skills i mean all of that is important but uh, it's not, uh, you know, training is not a substitute for the, you know, the problems in the structure of administrative power. So, if you if you just had to give, if you had to give advice to 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 young folks entering the policy world, what what would you tell them? I think it's important to 
you know, to be engaged, you know, if you're studying the state, if you're looking at, you know, if you're studying this, uh, the Indian state, I think it's, it's, it's important to come from a position where you care about what it does from the perspective, you know, to care about, uh, you know, to be invested in what the state does in terms of, you know, human outcomes, you know, social outcomes, but also justice and freedom and uh, dignity. Um, and I think that, you know, it's like you shouldn't study the Indian state because it's an interesting subject of study only. But you should also be, you know, you should also be invested in critique or challenge or, you know, whatever it is, in, you know, in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a position where you really care about um, about why you're studying this particular sector, this particular subject, this particular space. You know, it should not be a bloodless thing. Because I think, you know, that, you know, it's very, it's sometimes depressing to read that, to read and to engage with, um, you know, analysis of the Indian state. That's a little like where you don't, where it's a little like, you know, cold and bloodless. It's, you know, whether, whether it's critique, whether it's, you know, constructive, whether it's, uh, you know, whether you're in a positive or a negative place. It's uh, really nice to, uh, you know, to read the writing of people who, you know, where there's, you know, there's some heart and soul in it. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, as as someone who's seen it from the other side, from the journalism side, I think there's there's plenty of, of value of that and particularly, you know, in, in understanding things uh, on the academic side of things as well. Um, maybe then that just brings us to, to our final question on the series that we put to every speaker um, are there three works um, that you could recommend to to the audience um, that have influenced you or you've found important over the years? At different points in in my at different points in my journey up to where I am now, so you know some of this uh, some of this might be you know historical because it framed my thinking very early on, and some of it may be more recent. Um, you know, I think the first one I'd like to name is the work of uh, Solomon Benjamin when he wrote. You know, quite some years ago, he wrote a, a piece called "Illegible Claims, Legal Titles, and the Worlding of Bangalore." And I think it, this was very popular. I mean, you know, he's he taught us at law school as well. And, you know, it was something that shaped, you know, a lot of, you know, not just my thinking, but a thinking of a lot of people around me as well in um, in my sort of in law school, but also in my uh, professional world. Uh, and this, uh, the, his work around in understanding legibility and illegibility and land tenure and title and this you know in you know understanding it's you know just that the layered and you know the layered and understanding that he presented of this so this was one um Another useful piece, um, you know, which I encountered later and which I encountered when I was working on informal land tenure, but I thought it was a very useful piece for me at that time was the work of Jeffrey Payne, who wrote about urban land tenure policies and, um, you know, the notion of what he called the ladder of tenure and the importance of uh, building not titling programs, but forms of constructive state recognition of people in informal settlements. You know, I think this is a you know very important policy piece in to my thinking and it's helped shape my thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
third piece that that i just found you know that i just found you know refreshing and you know i recommended to people interested in cities is the the work of harini nagendra who is a uh, uh, who, who writes about bangalore again uh, and you know her work about uh, her work about her, her book titled nature in the city i mean i just found that uh, you know i just found it you know a refreshing and you know incredibly important but you know perspective about the relation between you know a lot of urban environmentalism is uh, framed around you know elite spaces pristineness um it's also you know can be structured in very anti-poor ways and uh, her approach to it was just very you know i think really important and really you know really different mm-hmm. and uh, a fourth thing that i would refer to as a you know as not a i mean you know it it helped me think about what what shouldn't be which is uh, you know some years ago i spent some time reading all the legal documentation around the delhi yamuna pollution case this is a cluster of cases it's not just a case but it's a cluster of cases and a cluster of court orders which starts in 1994 and i think continues to this day though i stopped reading it in 2016 and uh, it started in the supreme court and moved to the ngt and i started to read it for a kind of functional practical reason but then it became uh, you know it became you know a real insight into um, you know into the the uh, you know into the you know the the question of you know the the question was you know yamuna pollution delhi's pollution which uh, you know feeds into the yamuna but the problem of this kind of adversarial legalistic framing of the city pollution problem and it's you know it in the case engages with engineering it engages with standards it engages with environmental regulation it engages with all of these other these things but it's framed in a way that kind of helped me define you know what what was not my approach <laughs> to this to this problem i think the, you know i think just for that reason it was a really important you know maybe perhaps a couple of months that i spent uh, wading through and understanding this material super uh, no th- those all sound uh, like fascinating and we'll 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 put the titles um uh, for for readers and listeners to to go uh, look them up uh, Thank you so much for being uh, on the show uh, Arkaza. Thank you Rohan that was great. Thank you for listening to CPR Perspectives. Subscribe to this podcast feed for future interviews and you can also sign up to our newsletter which will be linked in the show notes. For more information on CPR's work you can follow the center on Twitter at cpr_india and log on to the website at www.cprindia.org. I'm at @rohan v on Twitter. And you can also read my newsletter India Inside Out on Indian politics, foreign policy and history at rohanvenkat.substack.com.